0: I'm really curious where you start when you compose. I'm sure that you have tons of different methods. Yeah. I'm really interested in what keeps you going and where the creative spark comes from.
1: If I were to imagine my creative life as a scale where I put enough weight on the side that is the research, the reading, the drinking in of whether it's architecture or conversations with people or fiction or what, what have you, there's a certain point where suddenly I'm propelled into an idea or an organizing principle, or sometimes I start writing and then the organizing principle reveals itself. Now, that's, of course, big picture. I think some of what you're asking, of course, has to do with the micro level of how does a song get written. And as you surmise, there are there are many different techniques. I think with this album was unusual for me in that it's really driven by character and driven by the stories that people were telling and a desire to actually have the music kind of get out of the way mm. so that these characters can speak maybe a fragment of text emerges or i've maybe i've written the story that i want to tell out not in verse not in rhyming couplets but just as a as prose and then it starts to get coaxed into prose. And then there's this kind of lattice work of a little bit of music, a little bit of text. In other instances, I've often treated songwriting as a space for etudes where, you know, there's a musical problem that yeah. I'm wrestling with. Um, like there's a song on, on, I don't know if you've spent time with The Ambassador. Yeah, I did. Uh, but but um, the song Bradbury, the second song, mm. Um was basically, you know, an exercise in seven against four playing yeah. seven in the right hand to four in the left hand. And, and then what does it mean to sing over that? And if music precedes the words, then, then it's sort of trying to capture the emotional terrain or the emotional essence of what the music is and finding story theme that, that matches. How
0: um, often is this this the case would you say? that the music precedes the, the lyrics. I'm asking this because a lot of the times I have the feeling, although you're so so adventurous in your writing in terms of harmonies, rhythm, everything, all the all the levels, it seems to me that in a lot of the songs, the rhythm of the melody dictates how long a section is, how long uh, a bar uh, is sometimes, how right, long right. Uh, it, the, the lyrics somehow, they're not bound by any laws of okay this is the rhythm of the
1: melody yeah 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 sure well i think with book of travelers which is the first album that i've made since my very earliest eps which i think you can't find any i think i've had them scrubbed from the (laughs) from the internet um it's the first time i've made a record that's just piano and voice since i was just starting out so it's kind of coming full circle in a way yeah and the decision to do that was both artistic you know aesthetically driven the in you know the intimacy and the isolation that i experienced on the trip it felt like it wanted to to be intimate and to not be bombastic and i had also spent a lot of time touring over the last couple of years where i was having to reverse engineer these big arrangements yeah. with the band back to solo piano and voice so with this album i thought well why not just skip that and write orchestrally at the piano and so In some cases, I'm able to create a sense of evolution in the arrangement from verse to verse, you know, through counterpoint and through introducing new ideas. But then sometimes it's also just about asymmetry, that the length of the verse changes partly to accommodate the words, but also partly so that there is a sense of development. Because I think when you're working with just piano and voice or, you know, a single accompanying instrument, you have to find other ways to keep the listening engaged. Yeah,
0: once there's a monotony creeping in, it's it's deadly right because right, it's so right. intimate as you said um right right once you go let like, okay here we go again so yeah. i'm going to hear this thing again and right. then i'm going to so hear think... this thing again your music keeps us on our toes right when we listen to it i'm on my toes to. like okay <laughs> i don't know if i'm, I'm not sure if i'm going to hear this part again so i better right, pay right. attention
1: you know? yeah well and i think that's always been that's always been a goal of mine to have the song's reward a listener yeah. for coming back to it. But to the question of how often the words come first, and I envy that when they sit down to write a song, they have a process that they commit to and that they stick to. For me, every song is different. For that reason, I never know when I'm sitting down, like if I'm writing words in a notebook, there's a little part of me that's like, oh God, am I doing the right thing or should I be at the piano or should I be at the guitar? Yeah.
0: yeah. Maybe you can um, uh, go a little bit into detail about about a couple of the songs on on the record. Like What If I Told You is one of my my favorite songs from Mm. from the record.
1: It's funny that you start with What If I Told You because I tend to be very cagey about talking about lyrics because the ambiguity and the things that are left unsaid are what allow a listener to forge a personal relationship to a piece of music or to a song. Now, the the one song that I've sort of made an exception for on this album is What If I Told You, because it's the one where I wrestled the most with the kind of political questions around it, having to do with privilege and having to do with who who has the right to tell what story. Right. And there's something about my encounter with this this woman who, who I've renamed, you know, uh, for the sake of, of her anonymity. That encounter, which took place toward the end of my trip, encapsulates so many of the questions and contradictions and challenges in the American political landscape right now, by which I mean that this is an extremely economically privileged woman who nevertheless, because of the color of her skin, feels fear and her sons feel fear on her behalf. And I was aware of this as I was sitting, having dinner with her, that I live a comfortable enough life, but I have debts and I'm constantly, you know, in a certain sense, I live paycheck to paycheck. And it was clear to me very quickly, that this woman had a kind of economic privilege that I don't have. Mm-hmm. But on the, other, on the other hand, and probably more crucially, her sons basically forbade her from driving to Mississippi because they were, you know, this was days after the election. There had been a, a spate of hate crimes in the United yeah. States, uh, white supremacists feeling emboldened by the election of Donald Trump. So there's this attempt to, you know, as I as I was describing at the beginning of our conversation, I took the trip because I wanted to understand Trump voters. And when I met this woman who is this the narrator of what if I told you, I told her that and she said, I don't give a fuck about <laughs> those people and here's why. Yeah, yeah. And you know, and and so the tension there, you know, to me all art should traffic in ambiguity. That ambiguity and subjectivity, which are inextricably linked, are the road to making art that is more than a polemic. The need for uncertainty and for and for moral murkiness yeah. um, is really, it's really important to me. And so she gives voice to this other side of the argument. And then you have this kind of dip into my family history. And and so I hope that the album is, is left with the listener having to make decisions for him or herself. Yeah,
0: you also do that on the musical spectrum—that that that, uh, ambiguity. Uh, I really like that, especially in November, the first song. You know, as I told you, I I listened to it, and then after a couple of seconds, you you got me. You know, that tremolo Mm -hmm. starts out, Mm -hmm. and immediately I went, okay, I didn't expect the tremolo at all, just just uh, because (laughs) my you know, just because my friend said here's a great songwriter. I was expecting something different than (laughs) tremolo, Right. right? And then you go on and harmonically i went okay this is something i've maybe heard before but i like the touch and i like the voice and i like how it goes together and then you kind of do a sp- to me it always sounds like a spell like a like a <laughs> magician's spell uh, but it's it's this uh, it's this fast figure in the in the ah
1: uh, uh, yes yeah the, in the
0: upper the register of bifano, the piano yeah. yeah sure so and then i always go wow okay where am i you know right. and that that this is the ambiguity and then you take it further throughout the song and throughout the record right. and then as i told you i checked all uh, most of your records and it seems like it's uh, something that you're interested in that that ambiguity and, and and not always going for you know a plain kind of information and once you go over there maybe for kind of a plain okay this is whatever kind of a chord you modulate in a very unexpected way Right. I'm, I'm, you know, I don't want to reduce your music to, uh, to, to, uh, the theoretical aspect. No, 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 no. But it's, it's we, important. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm, but I'm very interested in how you construct these things. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts are on this ambiguity and this, uh, you know, going for the unexpected. We've yeah. touched a little bit on that too, but maybe on a more um, uh, theoretical or, or yeah, practical yeah. musical um, uh, note.
1: Little, yeah, I think that. I mean, harmony is very central to the emotional language of my music. The challenge is you want to set up an expectation and then you want to break that expectation in a way that's more satisfying than what was expected. Right. So it's about creating an expectation and then misdirection. I think on a technical level, it's generally about counterpoint. Yeah. Very often, I think in songwriting, harmony is operating in a vertical way which limits the options, right? It's like chord, chord, chord. And so there, there are ways in which you can do things that are unexpected. But without voice leading, I mean, voice leading is what what allows you in any piece of music to stray harmonically and have it make sense, right? Yeah, because listeners, we we follow both the kind of magnetic pull toward a tonal center, but we're also following melody, you know, the, the linear motion. And so I think that if you're able to operate on two planes simultaneously, where you're operating on the plane of the vertical harmony, and the and the harmony, you know, as it progresses in time, and then also be operating with melodic expectation, that's where the kind of slipperiness in the in the harmony can emerge without it feeling like, oh, that's just a random chord. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, right.
0: yeah, N- yeah, it never sounds like now something completely different. Like, yeah, it always sounds deep and always sounds uh, that that there's a need for it. And I'm really amazed by how you still serve the melody. Because, right. you know, me as a piano player, I'm interested in how can I better my my uh, ability to to comfort somebody to accompany somebody, right? So you're accompanying yourself, but uh, serving the melody, with you it never goes against having a sense of adventure. And I love that, you know. Right,
1: Oh, thank you. I think that in a way comes back to uh, to Schubert and Schumann. Ooh. What I think they have in common as songwriters is that they make melody and harmony greater than the sum of their parts. And I think it, it has to do with the relationship between bass and soprano, you know, in the voice leading and chord quality. And I think for me, those two, are very, very close to my heart. And I think the way that I am thinking about harmony is often, even when it's you know fucked up and weird in ways that they wouldn't yeah. do in, in century, it's still the, the basic logic of how to accompany a melody. You know, I'll have what feels like it's on the way to a kind of melodic hook, but what's really gonna make it a hook is the question of whether the harmonic support is exactly right. And so I'll just kind of cycle through a bunch of different voicings, you know, to speaking of, of voice leading in a very basic way. I think when you're writing at the piano, as opposed to at the guitar, you just have more freedom to explore inversions. I mean, not that you can, obviously you can do that on the guitar as well, but, it, but it's more limited, they're, just easier, yeah. they're, they're just easier to access on the piano. Yeah. And so when it comes to thinking of like, oh, you know, scale degree one is in the melody. So if I can avoid scale degree one being in the bass, there might be more of a richness. And and sometimes it's that cerebral, and other times it's more intuitive. Thinking about what the melody represents in the harmony is always really central. If it's you know if if the melody is progressing slowly enough that its arrival with the arrival of a chord makes it such that the listener is really going to register the you know the melody note as being part of part of the harmony, Um, you know, and I think like in a way, November was sort of an etude in one thinking about the piano in an an orchestral way. The, the use of the drone is the, you know, the tremolo drone is very deliberate in trying to get myself out of habits as a songwriter. And
0: then,
1: and then the other part of it is having the voice almost always complete a triad so that the, the melody, is integral to the harmony. It's not like the melody is sitting on top of harmony. Yeah. Um, So so the dyads that are occurring in the left hand, they need the melody in order for the harmony to express itself completely. And then from there, as the harmony kind of gets weirder in the left hand, it's it's about using the grammar or the logic of dyads and seeing how they evolve over time. So yeah, I don't know.
0: Yeah, makes sense, man. Can we talk about uh, side streets? Oh, sure. <laughs> because that's the journey yeah. in itself, too. I mean, uh, I was really amazed by that song.
1: Thank you. Yeah. At the time, I had just kind of discovered Ligeti and the Ligeti piano mm-hmm. etudes. Yeah. And I think in particular, the fourth etude, uh, França, I was really obsessed by, which, of course, is the the one I mean, in in a way it's has a little bit of a relationship also to november mm-hmm. that the way the way that these dyads function to imply triadic harmony that's not fully spelled out
0: yeah
1: um, it's it's obviously much more restrained in november but basically the way that i wrote it was that i was exploring this tone row you know exploring it in in inversion and in retrograde and retrograde and inversion And I just sort of wrote out a bunch of the left hand on manuscript paper. And then I was making a catalog. I had this teacher, the one composition teacher I ever had, whose name is Ken Frizzell, wonderful composer from North Carolina. He had these exercises for helping his students to get unstuck when they were dealing with writer's block which was something that oh, I, I dealt with much yeah. much more when I was in my in my early 20s. So he would say make catalogs and the catalogs would be you know just write down five pitches at first five pitches you think of write them down then set a timer for 5 minutes and harmonize in four voices those five pitches five different ways. So you create five chord progressions based on these you know five arbitrary pitches then he would say take the same five pitches and create five phrases whose character is totally distinct um, through articulation, duration, dynamic, Um, same pitches, but maybe you change the register and you change articulation and so on and so forth. So I was sort of thinking about that, but instead of using those particular exercises, what I wanted to do is I wanted to take this tone row and explore the idea of harmonic resolution, the idea of cadence occurring where certain notes in the tone row would just become passing tones. So I would try to create chord progressions where every fourth note, so basically the dotted quarter, Mm -hmm. becomes a note in a triad and the other notes just become in a weird way. It's sort of like certain approaches, I think, to post bop improvising, Um, like I don't know if you know, George Garzon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good. So, like, I, I when I was uh, very briefly, I, I am also I'm a recovering jazz pianist. When I was when I was 18, I was studying jazz piano at New England Conservatory in Boston. Recovering. And, I like that word. Yeah. And and at the, well, I just no. I mean, I I basically what happened was I got to I became friends with Brad Meldow, and I was like, why would I bother playing jazz <laughs> when, when he's there to do it? Um. I mean, that's, that's a little bit reductive, but that is, I mean, that mm-hmm. that was part of what happened and he was very encouraging of my songwriting. And I thought, you know, I'll, I'm going to stick to the songwriting and yeah, yeah. Let, let him do the improvising. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I remember talking to horn players about the way George Garzon had developed this, this way of improvising where certain notes in the lines were kind of deliberately misleading in terms yeah. of where, where things sit harmonically, but that, he would return to a note that kind of anchors you. And I think that what's happening inside Streets is maybe somehow related to that, where I just made catalogs of all these different ways that harmony could become cadential, where it, you know, it resolves every, every dotted quarter, every quarter, um, and then all the other notes in the tone row just become noise, right? Mm-hmm. There's the idea in statistics of the signal and the noise, mm-hmm. that in the tone row, the way it's harmonized some of those pitches are the noise and yeah, yeah. the signal. And then it was, you know, it was like trial and error. I spent a long time writing that song. I think it took me like a month to write. And then I was also thinking, how can I make it feel like a song, even yeah. though it has this like tone row happening? Yeah, that's, uh, a, that's an amazing achievement of yours, <clears> I think.
0: Again, oh, it well, goes, it's still serving the melody, although there's so much interesting stuff happening down there. Right. I can't help but listen to the melody, right? Right. Um, right.
1: That's... that's the case where I, I absolutely wrote the words afterward. Okay. I wrote I think I wrote basically every note or at least the for at least for the verse, the verse started and then maybe I probably somewhere have a record of it, but I am pretty sure the music came first.
0: Yeah. Um the Ligeti influence um I thought about that when I listened to your piano pieces, the the music on paper or was Oh, uh, okay. Is it called music on paper?
1: Uh, works on paper.
0: Works on paper. Yes. Um, the first song of those three. Yes. I was thinking about Ligeti on that one.
1: I think, and, yeah. I, yeah, I think yeah. The influence is there for sure. Yeah.
0: What's your because now
1: you said you you're practicing
0: Ligeti? What, are there any other practicing routines of yours that you that you always go back to or? <laughs>
1: I don't practice enough. I mean, my piano playing has really suffered, I think in the last couple of years because I've been writing a lot of orchestral music, which is just so time-consuming. But that's uh, a
0: practice in itself. I mean, that, I, I'm not saying practice routines uh, you uh, know uh, locked into the piano only. Oh sure. It can be
1: guitar or uh, yeah, whatever yeah, you yeah.
0: feel like talking about.
1: Yeah, I think it changes for me every every year, depending on how I'm making my living in a particular year, because it changes, you know, in my creative practice, There can be months where I'm actually not dealing with music at all. I'm Mm. just dealing with reading and just dealing with writing text. Um, I try to avoid that because then when I come back to writing music, I forget how it goes, Ah, you know, Um, but it's so variable depending on the project. In the past, I've also, you know, I've sung um, Schumann's Dichterliebe. when i do that then i have to keep you know keep my piano chops in shape because they're, it's not super difficult but there are a few movements where there's mm. a lot of passage work and and i have some some upcoming projects that i think are going to require me to really return to the piano it's wonderful in the sense that my daily rituals are constantly being renewed and reinvented but that can also be overwhelming sometimes
0: mm-hmm. yeah. because
1: i don't fall i don't fall into Patterns for long enough. Just as I'm establishing a a pattern, the piece is done, and I start something new, and then so I'd start over again.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but maybe like this, every piece uh, kind of calls for different things musically, then, or it kind of yeah. brings you to different things musically, because yeah. you're maybe in a way your skill set or your chops uh, set is a different one, and you kind of approach it from a more uh, scaled down pianistic thing. Yes and uh, something else where you're more in the zone of playing, maybe brings you to a more intricate thing.
1: Yes, I think that's totally right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah I was kind of um, curious about the Craigslist leader thing, yeah. because I was amazed by the, the songwriting. Um, but how should I say this? I'm really curious how it started for you there musically. Uh, because reading stuff like that, um, I wonder where the inspiration comes from. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, if you yeah. read something like that, um, and the stuff you write could also be something to my ears. If you take out the, the, the lyrics, it could be something that's really emotionally engaging. So there comes a, a sense of irony uh, yep. that's attached to the music. So I'm wondering how you are still able with uh, something as ironic or, or funny, absurd in, in some, some cases also, to really dive into your inspiration and, and dig in this deep. Uh, I right. was wondering how you did that. I, I thought it yeah. was amazing how you, how you did that. Oh,
1: thank you. Well, I wrote that piece when I was 25 and I was really just starting to explore composing. Um, I had started writing songs just after I finished college. I moved to New York when I was 21 and I didn't really know what I was going to do. I was still maybe improvising and I had been an actor in college and before that, but I had this music history professor at Brown University where I went to college. And she kind of took me under her wing and understood that I was trying to think in really broad ways about the relationship between literary theory and music practices. And basically I got interested in this idea from the the French philosopher Derrida about the frame. When we talk about the frame of a painting or the frame of a text and the way that the frame has a huge impact on how we receive what's inside the frame. <clears throat> and so one instance of that being, you know, I grew up, my father is a conductor, and he was always talking about how audiences in this country, and this has changed a lot. I think that the openness to new music to contemporary music has just expanded radically, you, you are hearing so much more music uh, nowadays written by living composers. But when he was first starting to program new music, people had expectations and fears about what it was, because it was in a concert hall, right? Yeah. And to make a long story short, one of the ideas with Craigslist leader, I was, you know, I was a young guy, playing gigs for no money in little bars and clubs in New York. And I thought, well, what if I make some kind of art songs, but I take them into bars. And what if the texts feel relatable enough that the dissonance in the music becomes secondary to how relatable the text is? And this coincided with a moment where Craigslist was really ubiquitous. It's, It's really, you know, Facebook was only on a few college campuses at this point. Yeah. MySpace existed. Mm. Um, There was Friendster, one of the antecedents to Facebook. But so much in New York at the time happened on Craigslist. People found apartments, they found bicycles, they found people to go on dates with, so on and so forth. And it was a really fertile space to think about because the internet was also still kind of in an adolescence and the idea of public and private Um, the way that people would kind of bare their souls in these anonymous posts on Craigslist. It was really, it was fascinating. And I think I wrote this piece in part as a way of trying to engage with this new discursive landscape. And the way that I went about choosing the text was that I wanted them all to have a kind of genuine sense of longing, of alienation, or a genuine sense of need to connect, right? Mm. I was studying the Berg Piano Sonata at the time, and I think Mm. the third movement Half a box of condoms is very much coming out of the the language of Alban Berg and yeah. the, you know the piano sonata. The, it's a beautiful piece. Yeah, it's a it's a such a special and unusual sonata that that one. And neurotic and lonely. I think I was listening to Prokofiev and. Uh, It has a kind of, you know, Russian jagged sensibility, you know, in a way the the musical language feels like a pastiche. I hadn't really found my voice from a harmonic standpoint, although there are moments in it where it's like, oh yeah, I recognize myself. But I think they continue to get performed because the emotional language, even though it's a largely humorous emotional language, feels like that part of me was already I, I'd sort of figured that out, <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, uh, and so the piece still gets done quite a lot, just because there's something honest it's It's not funny for shock value for the most part. I think it's funny yeah, because yeah. it it's actually exploring some kind of question about humanity
0: Mhm yeah, you're not making fun of anyone, no you know you're exploring what's already there, right, and giving it actually a podium in a way
1: <laughs> right, right
0: a very special podium, yeah. Uh, maybe to to come to a close, maybe we can talk about what you are listening to at the moment.
1: Well, one thing that I just started listening to, I haven't even made it all the way through the record, is uh, John Hollenbeck's new project. Mm-hmm. Oh, it it's called All, Ca- all Can Work. Um, I just started listening to this, and I, I think it's really extraordinary writing. Mm. This this album called Myth M I T H by Lonnie Holly,
0: mm-hmm.
1: who is this kind of out outs? Do you know about this album? No sort of outsider folk African-American artist who's older. I think he's in his 60s and he has this incredible album that's, I think, largely improvisations that have then been sort of produced and dealt with in post-production. Really, really special music. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, the Angelus Quartet, this was a string quartet based in LA. They broke up 15 years ago, but right before they broke up, they recorded the complete Haydn quartets for Mm -hmm. Decca. Needless to say, I have not listened to all of them because there are a lot of quartets. Yeah. Um, But the playing is so, so spectacular. Wow.
0: Okay. Um,
1: The new Punch Brothers album, All Ashore, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I think is really beautiful. Uh, There's a string quartet by a young woman named Sky Maclay, and the quartet is called Many, Many Cadences. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a really wonderful short string quartet that I I really, really like a lot. Great. Um, Oh yes, here's here's another thing I heard that that was really wonderful. Do you know the Finnish violinist Pekka Kusisto? No. He's like one of my favorite musicians on the planet. He and I saw each other a few months ago and he turned me on to this Swedish Christmas album. Wow. <laughs> that Here has the most beautiful opening track. Anyway, um, all kinds of things. I've also been, you know, revisiting uh he has these beautiful Bach transcriptions, the mm. organ chorale prelude transcriptions that he plays with his wife. As I'm looking through what I've been listening to, it's a lot of older stuff. Some Mozart operas, some Steve Reich stuff, the musical Guys and Dolls, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is a score which I love, um, Birth of the Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you if you have things you're listening to that you're excited by, please please share them with me.
0: Will do, yeah. Okay, Uh, man. Uh, Great to
1: chat with you. Hey, likewise.